seated. Thanks, Sarah. Well, good morning. Welcome to Ridgetop Church. Welcome back. Some of you have been out for winter break and uh, getting back. Um, we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. It's a short book. It's only six chapters. Uh, I'd encourage you to read all the way through this week. Just take, take a time, and it won't take you hardly any time at all to, to read through it uh, and just get a sense of the entire book and where things uh, are in the book. Um, it is written to the church in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a pretty big deal in the first century. Uh, coastal city in Asia Minor. I think I've got a map coming up here in a second. Yep. And so this is modern-day Turkey, and you can see on the west coast here, this, this right here in Ep- where Ephesus was. And now it's modern-day Izmir is the closest, like, actual city uh, that's close to Ephesus. And you've got Mediterranean Sea down here and Aegean Sea up here and Greece. Um, and so this is, this is where they're located. It, it was the capital of the pr- Roman province of Asia Minor. Um, and it was a harbor. It had a harbor, and so a lot of trade, largest trading center in that province. Um, it became a Roman city about 80 or so years uh, before Christ, and it stayed that way until the beginning of the 6th century A.D. Um, it had a lot of beautiful structures. This is a very impressive uh, city, and so this... Um, First picture, here we go. <laughs> Having some struggles, it's okay. Um, so it, it's a city built on a hill. The hill goes down to the sea. And a beautiful library, uh, indoor toilets, public toilets. There was uh, a massive, or, or still to this day, you can see this massive theater where all the latest and the greatest plays came through uh, Ephesus. Uh, It was home of the Temple Artemis, which was larger than American football uh, field. Um, So this massive, massive thing that you could go to and worship the goddess, built of marble and cypress and cedar, Um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this, this place is impressive. Um, life in Ephesus is bustling. It's got politics and religion and trade um, and culture. And we can see in Acts 19, Paul getting in a little bit of trouble as he brings the gospel in the midst of uh, this bustling city. Uh, Acts 19.23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, the way being the Christian faith. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Quite a speech. 
And then when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And so even in that little snippet there in Acts 19, we can see the culture and the trade and the religion all kind of converging in this moment where Paul is trying to bring the gospel to bear uh, in that city. It was a boomtown, not unlike Austin, Texas. Um, we are quite a boomtown. Uh, there was an extensive report by uh, the McKinsey Consulting Group this last year about Austin, and they called Austin uh, a boomtown for these same reasons, culture, education, and, and um, po- politics, um, things of the, of the, of the nature of the, of the Ephesians. Um, and much like the Ephesians, we have built our own temples to our own gods and goddesses. I have some awesome pictures. Uh, there we go. Look at there. We're back in, we're back in action here. Uh, to the God of innovation, the Google building. Right? Pretty amazing. The God of finance, the Frost building. Frost is, is a Texas-based bank. Not like those other banks, right? About $3 billion in assets. Um, to the God of politics, the Capitol building, which if you've ever been on tour there, they are, are definitely sure to tell you that it is taller than the national capital. And we had to get special permission to do that, only in the state of Texas. Um, the God of culture, there's a lot of cool venues in Austin, but this is my favorite. This is the, the Moody Amphitheater. And, uh, I mean, it rivals any Greco-Roman amphitheater. This thing is amazing, and you've got the, the seating down below. You've got these grassy uh, knolls up high that you can sit on. You can look, look at what's going on. And uh, if you haven't been to a concert there, you really ought to go because it's amazing. Um, to the God of education and sports, um, the, the, the UT Tower. This used to be the library okay, at the university, filled with books, and you could kind of come around it and worship the books. You know, it's like this big, big, massive uh, tower. And then, of course, we have our own gladiators um, that uh, have gladiatorial games, not just on the field, but also court and track and swim center and you name it. So a lot of amazing things that go on in Austin, Texas. Many of them are good, absolutely good and beautiful glorious, and oftentimes are being ascribed ultimate worth. That is, they are worshipped. And again, similar to the Ephesians, there's some really good things going on in Ephesus, but there's also an ascribing of ultimate worth to these things that are not God. No doubt this is partly why the Apostle Paul lands there in that city. It's a hub. It's a place that not only gets the gospel to a whole bunch of people in a very large metropolitan area, but it's also going to export that gospel out to the other nations because a lot of coming and going is happening in this large city. Austin's no different, right? This is my prayer, that we not only be a place of culture and education and politics and sports, but that we really would be a place where what starts here changes the world, right? They're, they're, they're not wrong when the University of Texas says that. 
but what kind of change is it going to bring about? My hope is that there will be many churches, both those that exist and those that do not yet exist, that will thrive in this city, that will bring the gospel to every little nook and cranny of the city and every little college campus. And, and it will not only bring the gospel to people here in Austin, but then it will export that gospel out of the city of Austin into the nations. And so we have the opportunity to participate in that kind of a move of God. Now, how does that happen? Um, I think Ephesians has a lot to say about how that happens, how to be a local church that's both faithful and fruitful in the location where it's been planted. Um, from the first two verses of this book, these are kind of flyover verses, these first two, right? You just kind of read them, you keep going, get to the good stuff. We're going to take a moment here to, to really uh, drill down into these first two opening verses where the Ephesians and us are encouraged and challenged to be saints, to be saints. Um, and I, you can think of the book in this way, that this is telling you how to be a saint, the rest of the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is why I'm calling this sermon series Saints in ATX. Um, one, of, one, one way to think about this is that it's teaching you not only to be saints, but to be saints in a particular location. So it's the saints in Ephesus. For us, it's the saints in Austin. Um, and interestingly enough, the, the New Testament manuscripts that we find that are ancient manuscripts, some of them don't have to the Ephesians in there. It's been taken out. And so what scholars uh, propose is that it was a circular letter, that uh, it was given, yes, to the Ephesians, but also to other churches in Asia Minor, and it was on the tour. And so now think of this book as having been on the tour for 2,000 years, and it's made its way to Ridgetop Church, to the saints in Austin. So let's look at it again. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, I'll read this again. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at three things. What is a saint? How do I become a saint? And how do I live as a saint once I become one, right? What is a saint? How to become a saint? How do I live like a saint? So what is a saint? Well, it's translated from a Greek word, hagios, which just means holy one, a holy one. We usually think of God as holy, and we should. What do we mean when we say that God is holy? A couple of big ideas are in that one word, holy. One is that God is set apart. He is other. He is in a category by himself. It's also, uh, the, the meaning is also includes that he is perfect. Those fit together, right? He's set apart. He's other. He's in a category by himself. And that category happens to be absolute perfection, right? And so he is holy. His love is a holy love. It's absolutely perfect. His justice is a holy justice. It's absolutely perfect and set apart. His power is a holy power. Absolutely perfect and set apart. 
holy really is the best word to describe God. When we see in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah, he's getting a vision of the, uh, the throne room in, the, in heaven, and he sees the angels around the throne, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Right? This idea, he's set apart, and he is absolutely perfect. So that makes sense, that God is holy, but what does it mean for a human to be holy? <laughs> a holy human. Well, it's similar to this idea of set apart and perfect, and it's also different, right? It's not, it's not exactly the same, but there is some similarities. So as a holy human, we are set apart, but we're set apart by and for God. Our holiness is directly connected to a holy God. Humans aren't inherently holy, separate from God. We're holy if we're connected to God. We're a creation of a holy God. Our holiness is a result of being in relationship with God. Uh, in Karl Barth's lectures on Ephesians, he says this, holiness is a relationship with God. You can't be a holy human <laughs> if you're not in relationship with God. And this was the state of everything in the created order. And we just went through Genesis, and we saw this in Genesis 1 and two, where the universe is depicted as God's temple, and God has created all of it, and He's dwelling in it. Everything is holy because it's in right relationship with God. It is from God. It is for God. And that cosmos is reflecting the holiness of God. And human beings are uniquely doing that because they are His image bearers. A holy human is reflecting the holiness of God because they have been made holy by God. It's expressed and it is an identity. You get both senses in the book of Ephesians, this idea of being categorically set apart by and for God and also expressing holiness that looks like God. So Ephesians 1.4 is this, you're set apart, right? Ephesians 1.4, we'll look at this next week. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that's a set apart, a category of holiness. But then he also wants us to express that in the practical day-to-day. In Ephesians 5.1, we'll hear this when we get to chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so we're not just in a category of holiness, we're expressing holiness as we express uh, the character of God. Human beings are designed by God to be holy, to be set apart by and for God, and to uniquely reflect God. This is, this is we, we use these terms before, our ontology, who we are, and our teleology, our purpose, is all wrapped up in this Holiness. Holy is the height of human thriving. And it's important for us to hear that because that's not usually what we think when we think of the word holy or saint. When we hear holy or saint, we think of people who are stuffy and judgmental and joyless. We say things like, that person is holier than thou. 
And honestly, we think the same things about God. That, that he is stuffy and judgmental and joyless. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Now, if we want to see holiness, both in God and in a human, look at Jesus. If we want to understand what holiness looks like in God and what holiness looks like in a human, we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, he is, talking about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul is describing the mystery of what we call the incarnation, that Jesus is truly human, he's truly divine. And as being truly human and truly divine, he's showing the holiness of God, he's showing what a holy human looks like. In Jesus, we see God's holy love and his holy justice and his holy power. In Jesus, we see how a human displays holy love and holy justice and holy power. Jesus, the divine Son of God, displays how to be and behave like a saint. Right? So when we think of holiness, we need to think of Jesus. Now, how do I become a saint? We're already beginning to answer that question. That if someone is going to be holy, that holiness must originate from a holy God. Now, from my earlier comments, you might think, well, I'm already holy because I'm originated from God, right? I'm created by God, and there's some truth to that. Uh, humans have a dignity, they have a, a worth, and whether or not they're in right relationship with God, they are displaying in some way the, the glory of God, the, the holiness and the perfections of God. But it doesn't take long to realize that human beings, including ourselves, are not very saintly. We know that. We have a sense of that, that we and other humans throughout the ages and today are not that saintly. And, and when we look at, our, look at Jesus, we compare ourselves and others to Jesus, again, we're like, okay, we're, we don't seem to be measuring up to this holy human uh, kind of a, a, a vision. And this is a biblical way of thinking about sin, that sin isn't a thing in and of itself. It's a lack of a thing. It's a lack of holiness. It's a missing of a standard. It's a missing of the mark. Um, you hear David uh, talking about holiness in this way in his psalm, Psalm 15. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, he does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money as in, at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And that, that's the end of the, the psalm, right? David's asking this question, who, who can ascend to your holy hill? Who can come in relationship with a holy God? And the implication is those who don't sin, right? And if you sin, you can't ascend to a holy God. The Apostle Paul, he says it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This idea that if, if you've sinned, you're not holy and therefore not in relationship with a holy God. And so we're, we're not saints by mere fact of being created 
by God because we're also sinners, right? And so how can Paul say to the Ephesians who are sinners, you're a saint? Well, it's that their sainthood has been gifted to them. It's a gift, and it's a gift given to them through Christ. Again, look at the first two verses of this book, right, where he mentions Christ, Jesus, Christ, Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Like, this is just the first two sentences. Before he gets done with the book, he'll, he'll use the word Christ 45 times, <laughs> over and over and over and over again, letting the Ephesians know you have this identity as a saint only through Christ. It's a gift that's been given to God, uh, given by God through faith in Christ. Who is this Lord Jesus Christ? He uses these three names there in the second verse. Lord, meaning he's God. Jesus, meaning he's a savior, right? Jesus means Yeshua saves, Yahweh saves, right? Um, And then Christ, he is a king. Christ just means anointed one. And the Jews have been waiting for this messianic king. He's saying, he's the king. He is also God. He is a king, and he is God who saves us. Right? And it's through this work of Christ that he can then bestow this gift of sainthood. This is the only way that we could be holy, which means we can be back in relationship with a holy God. We can ascend the hill that uh, David was talking about in Psalm 15 because we've now been made holy by grace through faith. Christ, the Holy One, has died in the place of the unholy one, you and me, and has made us by grace holy. This gift saves us from our sinful condition and its consequences. Later, we'll read this in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and a result, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So perhaps you've never received that gift that Christ is offering you this morning. Receive it as it is, a a free gift of being forgiven of your sins and reconciled with a holy God. You become a saint by grace and through faith, not by works. It can't be something that you work your way up to the hill (laughs) to, to, to ascend to a holy God. The holy God has gone down the hill to us, to the unholy, and made us holy by grace. So if we've received that gift of grace, if we are our identity as, as saints, how do we live? So this is the third part. And this is what the book of Ephesians is all about, how to be a saint in the city of Ephesus or city of Austin. And what this book's going to do, it's going to help us root ourselves in our saintly identity, and then it's going to teach us how to live that saintly identity out in the day today. So it's a belief piece, and then it's going to move into practice. Right? We talked a lot about this in the last few weeks. So this is, this is the, the overview of the entire book, how to be and how to behave like saints. There's already a few hints in these first few verses about how to live as saints. So here, here's five, real quick. 
Saints are focal, they're communal, they're local, they're faithful, they're needful, and they're global. And we're going to hit those themes over and over and over again throughout the semester. This gives you a little taste of what does it mean? If I'm a saint, I'm going to live this identity out. These five things are a good, good place to start. True saints are focal, meaning they're focused on Jesus. All right, again, he's, he's going to mention just the, 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 the Christ name 45 times in the course of the book. Paul is obsessed with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants the Ephesians to be obsessed with the Lord Jesus Christ. We at Ridgetop say we're centering on Christ, right? It's not just the one and done. Okay, centered on Christ last week. We're good. No, we're centering on Christ every week. You've, you've sung of Christ. You're hearing Christ in the, in the Scripture reading. You're hearing Christ preached. You're going to see Christ as we take the bread and the cup. It's, 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 it's Christ-centered. Right? And so this is, this is, why do we do that? Well, it's because what we read in the New Testament, the church is to be focused on Christ. It's also communal. Notice that Paul addresses the saints in Ephesus. The saints is plural. Those that are true saints. This is what Grace was, was mentioning earlier in talking about how to live out the Christian life. It's not just by yourself, right? It's in community. There's no way to read Ephesians and come away thinking, you know, it's okay to be a Lone Ranger Christian. I'm sorry. <laughs> After you read those six chapters this week, you'll walk away going, wow, church is really important. And not just nebulous church, like local church. We'll get to there here in a minute. Ephesians 4, he uh, pulls together this focal and communal idea. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you can kind of see this Christ-centeredness, but you can also see this call to be in community that is grounded in, centered in uh, Christ. And so saints are also local, right? If you're going to be in a a community, then you're going to have to ground yourself in a local fellowship, a local church. These saints are not in, uh, addressed in a way that sounds kind of nebulous. Y'all Christians, it's this church in Ephesus, right? It's a local body. And so it's addressed to a particular church in a particular place. Um, you can hear this, the working out of this local communal kind of body in Ephesians 4 again. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Like, okay, cool. I'm gonna walk, I'm gonna walk this out. Me, myself, and Jesus. And then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, <laughs> eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is no doubt he's talking about local church kind of life. Right? He wouldn't have to be talking about humility and gentleness and patience and working at unity. He wouldn't need to talk about all that if it wasn't a a local congregation who's working that out. Last night, Melanie and I went to this really cool concert. It was was some musicians in the round. And so it was these four musicians in the middle of the room. 
and then the, the audience was all in a, in a circle around them, and they were, they were all doing music and taking turns. And they had just spent seven days together in an artist's retreat, right? And so they were just oozing with creativity, and they were oozing all these encouragements to each other and how awesome it had been. And, uh, and, it, and it was. You could tell that a lot of good things had happened, and, and, and they were Christian folks. And, uh, I, but I was thinking, I wonder how it would be if you spent more than seven days together. What if you spent a year together? What if you spent two years together? What if you spent a decade, two decades, three, four? What would it be like? Right? This is what Paul's talking about. He's, he's talking about working this out in a local setting for years, decades even. And so this is the, the life of the true saint, right? It's focal, it's communal. It's local, and that local is also not just about the community, but the local is also about the mission. That wherever a church has been planted, it has been planted there in large part to be on mission in that particular context. That the Apostle Paul sees these little churches as embassies of the kingdom of God, planted wherever they are. And they're, they're, they're representing, they're being ambassadors for the kingdom of God in that particular locale. Jesus seems to agree. Really interesting. We open up the book of Revelation and you read these, le- these letters to the seven churches of a- uh, Asia Minor. And the first one is to the church at Ephesus. And Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, most likely to the, the, the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write. And then there's this thing that's written to the church at Ephesus. And then a few verses later, to the angel or the messenger of the church of Smyrna, write. And then this message to that church in Smyrna. And then to the, the church in Pergamum. And it goes on for uh, f- you know, four more churches. And it, it's saying this is the church in this particular locale. And so true saints are focal, they're communal, they're local. Uh, they're also faithful. So we see in that second verse, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's some debate among scholars as to whether this is the saints are faithful in Christ Jesus or the saints that believe in Christ Jesus. Um, usually when there's these uh, Greek translation issues where there's a either or, it's probably a both and. Paul's saying two things at the same time, that they are full of faith and they're living consistently with being full of faith. They're being faithful, right? And so they have this faith in Christ Jesus and they're living consistently as one who is full of faith in Christ Jesus. And how are they doing that? They're doing it in Christ Jesus, right? They're not just having faith, nebulous faith. This is one of the things that, it's, it's so weird. People just, I just got to have faith. Got to have the faith. Keep the faith. It's like, that's not, it's not that helpful, you know? I mean, the power of optimism, eh, there's a little bit of power in it maybe, but, but faith in what? Well, it's clear here. Faith in Christ Jesus. This brings us to the next uh, thing here. They're needful. They know their need. They need Christ. Uh, in Ephesians 2... Paul describes the pre-Christian person in this way. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, talk about needy, that's needy, dead is needy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's some amazing need and a meeting of that need where we go from being dead in transgressions to being seated in the heavenlies. And why is God doing that? To show off his grace. (laughs) To show off his immeasurable grace. And he shows that grace not in just saving us and giving us this category of sainthood, but giving us grace every day to live the sainthood out and to give us grace in the hereafter as we're going to be sustained by gospel grace once we're in eternity. And that's going to be required of us forever and ever. Amen. We are trophies of God's grace. So when we are aware of our need and we go to God to have that need met, um, it is part of what it means to be a saint. And then lastly, true saints are global. Saints aren't just concerned about the mission in their backyard, although that's important. They're also concerned with the mission of God among the nations. Paul himself is an example of this, right? He just says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Apostle just means a sent one. And, and so he is going to the known world, right, to the, the world that he knows about, and he is bringing the gospel to them. And there were churches that were praying for Paul when he showed up in Ephesus to bring the gospel to Ephesus. And now he's going to be telling the, the, the church of Ephesus, you need to be praying for me as I'm taking the gospel to the next place, right? He says this in Ephesians 6, verse 18 through 20, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So praying for all the churches that they know of. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so when we were looking at that map, uh, Paul's on the other side of that water. He's over there in Macedonia in prison. And he's saying, pray for me, pray for me that, that when I speak, that the gospel will go out in this place, just like it went out in Ephesus. And we'll see churches continue to be planted in the gospel uh, to go out. We did some of this earlier this morning. We, we had this massive map of the Middle East that we rolled out on the floor and we prayed for the nations of the Middle East. We prayed for that region, all that's going on in there and the missionary work that's going there, asking the Lord, do this new work in this time of instability and, and violence and craziness. Um, make this a time where the gospel goes out in power. So how to be a saint? This is at least a little bit of a primer. Focal, communal, local, faithful, needful, and global. We're reminded of this every time we come to the table. Right? We're, we're reminded to be focused on Christ. It's, it's, it's like a visual reminder. You, didn't, you weren't reminded in the singing and you weren't reminded in the sermon. And Here's another reminder, right? In the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup. It's also a, a time where we are reminded to be communal, right? My understanding of, the, of communion is you don't take it by yourself at home. You take it with the body, right? And it actually is a, a, a signifier of the local body, right? And so when we do this dinner, we do this supper, it's like family supper. And the family of God, this local body of Ridgetop Church, 
is coming around this family supper. And the way we do it, we invite friends of the family to come and also participate. But our hope is that you would become a, a, an actual official part of this family as, as we take this family dinner uh, together. It's also a reminder that we're needful, right? I mean, food is just one of those things that we really need it. Right? You don't eat a few meals, you feel it, right? It's a great reminder. Actually, we need something more than food. We need Jesus. And so this, this taking of this piece of bread and taking this cup is a reminder of how needful we are. And it's also a reminder of how global we are. Because the church is doing this all over the planet. It may look a little different here or there, but the church all over the planet is breaking bread, taking the cup, focusing back on Jesus, and we're doing that throughout all the nations. So let's remember those things as we take this bread and cup, as we remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, this remembrance back to the focus of the church. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me, reminding them they are this covenant community, this local, communal, but on a mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christ follower, we welcome you to the family dinner. If you're not yet a Christ follower, we encourage you to take Christ by faith, or at least begin to explore that, to ask questions, to pick up a book on the back table there that will help you explore the Christian faith a little bit more, or have a conversation with me, or maybe somebody else in the room. But if you're not yet a Christian, we're going to ask you not to take the bread and the cup, because it is a signifier that uh, you are uh, in Christ and uh, part of his family. So let's pray, and then we'll begin. God, we thank you that uh, we get to be saints by grace. Lord, we could have never done this on our own. We could have never ascended the hill <laughs> and tried hard to become holy. And yet, by your grace, you've made us holy. And so we, we revel in that. We marvel at that, Lord, uh, that you've done this. It's such a, a sweet gift to us, which has so many implications, but one of which is we're in right relationship with a holy God. And we remember what it took for that to become a reality, that the holy died in the place of the unholy and gave us the gift of our sainthood. So would you bless this bread and this cup? God, as we take it, may we remember uh, the cross, remember what it means to be your child, to be a part of this family. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.